Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue on the series together. We are walking in the series with a, uh, just a simplicity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The book of Hebrews shows us the supremacy of Christ in all things, how Jesus is greater. Summer is a time of season where there is a lot of change, a lot of things going on, a lot of things you don't normally do in the routine of life that you've got to get everyone back in line when school starts. But knowing you're typically out of routine this time of year, we just want to focus on in your Christian life what it means to be a pursuer of Jesus and, and to rest in him and to enjoy the reason for which God has created you as you enjoy his presence in your life. And I'm just going to be frank in starting this off and let you know, Hebrews chapter 6 is kind of the tying together of everything we've learned so far in saying to you, so what? Like, what are you going to do with the topic of which we have discussed together as it relates to Jesus? We have seen the significance of Christ in our lives through uh, everything that's been described in the first five chapters, and we're going to continue to see that. In fact, I'm just being honest, my favorite chapters are 7, 8, and 9 of this book. And then in chapter 10, it makes application to living out the Christian life. And so at this juncture of the book, we, we kind of hit the pause button on what's being stated here and, and sort of do a heart check of where our lives are as it relates to Christ. And the beginning of this verse, it says this, we're leaving the elementary teachings about, the Christ, about Christ. Let us press on to maturity. And so the idea of this this section of scripture is to recognize God desires for you to, to grow in him. To be mature in Jesus. If you remember the end of chapter 5, kind of a weird verse that, that it used to illustrate what it means to be mature in Jesus. It talks about the nurturing of a child. And Paul says you're all still on, on milk when you should be biting into steak, right? Instead of, instead of meat, you're on milk. And it's kind of the picture of as a mother uh, nurses a baby within the first year of life. looks totally normal. But when you get to like age 15, man, people freak out about that. That is weird. You don't want to be doing that at that point in life. You need to become rather teachers yourself. And, and what it's saying to us is that God wants to do such an incredible work in you that he then works through you. That God doesn't want you to hoard what he does in your life to yourself, but let that light shine through your life. And he's describing this as maturity. And just so you know where we're going, I'm going to start here and end here. And I want you to know that the life of the gospel ends in death or begins in death. I should say it like that. The life of the gospel begins in death, meaning What Jesus did for us in his death brought us life, and that is the gospel. Jesus dies on the cross for you. He says, to tell us thy pain in full, it is finished for you. He he becomes the atonement, taking on your sins. The Bible calls him the propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God, invites you to trust in him and what he has done as a sufficient sacrifice so that you can experience life. So in death, in the gospel, there becomes life. And that's how the gospel continues to move forward. As you lay down your life in Christ, God continues to work in you and through you. And so when we talk about Christian maturity, it is literally the laying down of your life so that God can work in you and through you. The gospel or the goal of Christianity isn't about just information. Like we we study the Bible together and we're not just studying the Bible. It's a beautiful picture we've seen, but we're not just studying the Bible for information. What we desire in is transformation. Our goal isn't to make you smart. Our goal is to see you holy, separated in Christ. And so what Paul is doing in this passage of Scripture, he's calling out the body of, of believers that, that he, desires, he desires Christians to experience maturity. And he's calling out the body of believers to move forward in maturity in Christ because we meet certain challenges in our lives that, that can bring hang-ups. But what, what the author of Hebrews desires is for you to thrive in your Christian living. 
Right? It's likened into what a parent's desire is for their children. You don't, you don't want your children to be dependent forever, but rather become independent. You don't want to see your kids become a drain on society, but a blessing to society. Not a taker, but a giver, a contributor, life-giving in this world. And the same is true with Jesus' desire for you. That as he makes you new on the inside, transforming your life, you, you d- express that newness in this world. And so God's desire for you is to see this maturity be made known. That what God produces in you reproduces in this world. In fact, Paul said to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, there's going to be all kinds of people in this world that are challenging, but look for those individuals that are on fire for the Lord and continue to pump life into them so that they can begin to express that in this world, help them develop in their maturity. And I think that's an important concept to think about because in our lives, what we tend to do as people is we get really fixated on the problems, like especially perfectionists. We'll get so fixated on the problems that we forget what's working. And we want everything to work well. But any good businessman will tell you when it comes to business, you can't fix every squeaky wheel. But rather you want to continue down the path of what your business or what it's created to do, what you're, what you're about. And the things, same thing's true with Christianity. Some, sometimes we get so fixated on our problems that we just simply try to uh, treat the symptoms. But what God desires to do is completely transform your life. It's like this. It works like this in our life. When we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we know it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. From a legalistic, symptomatic solution, we'll be like, you know, I'm okay and loving, but I don't have joy. And so we'll fixate on joy. But when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, what it's saying to you is, is not to treat the symptoms by being more loving or being more joyful when you don't have it. Rather, it's surrendering your life to the Spirit of God. Let God have your life. Saying to the Lord, Lord, have your way in me. I'm created for your purpose. I no longer want to live for my glory, but it's about yours. God, do your work in me. It's not about the symptom, but rather the solution. This idea of maturing in Christ. It's putting on the big boy pants, right? I mean, you think maybe as a young person, there's certain monumental moments of life that you, you waited for because you knew once you got to that point, you were going to be so grown up, right? I mean, the first time you got your driver's license or maybe voted or, or for me, this is kind of unique, maybe a little bit weird, but, uh, I remember the first time I went into McDonald's, I, I could still see it in my mind. I went into McDonald's and rather than order the happy meal, I got the Big Mac. <laughs> you know? I, I, was, I put it down so fast. I beat everyone to the finish line. And, and, and I wondered why in my life I had not tasted the glory of the Big Mac much sooner. You know, That Thousand Island dressing, it was just it was magic in my mouth. But that step of maturity, that mark of growth, that's what the author of Hebrews is pursuing your life because he understands what God can do in you and through you how powerful that becomes. And sometimes we get focused on the problems, treating the symptoms, rather than just letting our heart rest in the solution, which is Christ. 
And at the same time, the believers within the context of what's being written here, they're focused on the past as well. Look at this. It says, leave the elementary teachings about Christ, press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about the washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. So it goes on these, these different areas where they're going back to the repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, but they're living in the past. The for them, they, they can't move forward because they're not looking at the sufficiency of Jesus. They're stuck in the identity of the religious past. And it's if they're saying in the living of their life, uh, what Jesus did was good, but it just wasn't good enough. And you remember the sort of the conundrum these individuals were in. This is the book of Hebrews written to the Jewish people. And they've lived with this religious identity. And they're about to be persecuted because of their faith now in Christ and what he's accomplished for them. In in Acts chapter 7, they've already experienced the persecution with with Stephen when Stephen was martyred that sent the church spreading all over the Roman Empire. And Paul, in fact, before he became the apostle Paul, went out to persecute the church. And when he was on the way to persecuting the church, that's when he, he became a believer. But he wanted to devastate Christianity in its beginnings. And so Christianity begins to spread, but we're, we're now on the cusp of Nero beginning his persecution. And the writer of Hebrews can see this coming, and he wants to see the believers in Jesus solidifying their faith. And so they're stuck between these two worlds. Pursue Christ and all that he is and the sufficiency of him and, and alienate my people or make my people happy by partaking in the religious works that undermines the sufficiency of Jesus and still hang out with the Christian community. And what the author is saying in this passage is, look, that's dead works. You can't have it both ways. It's either Jesus is sufficient enough and you walk with him, or you deny Christ and you embrace your community. That's the conundrum in which they are in. And the way that the author is calling this, he's recognizing they're reverting back to their past and not living in their present and the sufficiency of Christ. But he's, he's referring to it this that way, it's, that it's, they're, they're going again to the repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He doesn't want them to walk this road again, but I, I love that he, he's saying in this passage these two ideas of repentance and, and faith because it, it's the same idea but just different sides of the coin. And sometimes we, we read the word repentance and we have such a bad idea of what repentance is. It is. We have a religious mentality of thinking about repentance. When we say repentance, oftentimes what happens in our mind is this thought of penance. Like to come before God, I've got to pay a certain amount of guilt on my shoulders, a certain amount of, of pain, a, a certain amount of sorrow, a certain amount of beating myself up because of what I've done wrong. And so we see it as an attitude of penance, but it's, repentance isn't penance. Repentance is to understand in a biblical perspective that Jesus has already paid it all. But repentance pays is this idea that we're walking down a particular path in life and we begin to realize this path is messed up. This path is not getting me ultimately where, where, where I should be in life nor what life is all about. And so rather than continue down this path, in this case a religious path, I'm going to turn from this path. But repentance is only one side of the coin. Because the question you have to answer is, when you turn from this path, what path are you turning toward? It's like this. Anyone that struggles with addiction, wonderful, wonderful, which we all do in a certain degree of whatever sin that you just fall into. Right? We all have that sin in our lives where it's like, I just can't beat this. But, but when, you talk about, when you talk about repentance from, from sin or the turning from something, 
The question isn't just what you're turning from, but also what you're turning toward. Because if all you're doing is leaving something behind, what you'll do is find some other vice to replace it. Some other fixation. Something else to be addicted to that's not healthy. So it's not just about what you're turning from, but what you're turning toward. And the idea of faith in this passage gives that expression. When you see this written in the Bible, oftentimes they'll carry these two words together. Repent and believe. Repent and have faith. Turn from the road of destruction and turn to the one that gives you life. And so he's saying what they're doing in this passage is they're going back to the, to the, to the very thing in which they left and which doesn't work. And so this calling is to, to maturity to see the sufficiency of Christ and laying down your life and the sufficiency of him, not laying uh, the foundation of the past, but moving into the presence in Jesus. And then he begins to list certain areas in which they're faltering. Verse 2, it's the instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And I want you to know this. This, this verse drove me crazy because I went and read tons and tons of commentaries on this, trying to figure out what exactly this was talking about. And this is the conclusion I got to. You can join me in this challenge if you want. No one knows. No one knows exactly what verse 2 is talking about. And the reason is they don't have enough detail here. What aspect is it referring to when it talks about the washing and laying on the hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment? No one really knows exactly what it's talking about. But the overall implications are this, that they're seeing this as sufficient as it relates to the gospel and they're adding to it. For us, we don't need to know the details of what's taking place here to still make application to our lives. But nonetheless, he's presenting to the early believers where they're faltering in in the faith of pursuing God with their lives. They're getting caught up in these secondary issues and making them primary to the gospel. And then you get to verse 4 to verse 6. And just to scare the life out of you this morning, (laughs) I want you to know verse 4 to verse 6 some people say are the most challenging verses in all of the New Testament. Um, in fact, they, they, they definitely agree that in the book of Hebrews, these, this, these three verses are, are the most challenging verses in Hebrews, if not the entire New Testament. But I want to read it to you, and you're going to see it, when it as we read along. It says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, Look at this. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have again, again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now here's the holy cow moment, right? Unless you're in India, that's offensive. Don't do that there. But, but what this verse is saying here is it's saying it's describing an individual partaking of the Holy Spirit in some way within the context of the community of Christ, they see who Jesus is is, and and whatever decision they make there, ultimately they decide to just move away. So is this passage teaching you lose your salvation? Or or what about this? What What if in your life you were a follower of Christ and you walked away from Jesus, but now later in life you came back to Jesus? Can you really come back to him? Like once you left, is that all for you and you're just here wasting your time today? Is that what this passage is saying? freak out, right? This is a, okay, this is a sobering moment to think about walking after Christ and what it means to be pure in your walk with Jesus and giving your life to him. What is this passage saying? I'm not going to tell you. I'm just kidding. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I want you to know too, if you, if you look this up, there's some people 
debate a little bit over what's being talked about in this, this section of scripture. Um, Wayne Grudem agrees with what I'm about to tell you. Warren Wearsby has the same stand. So it, uh, what I'm going to say to you is not an um, unpopular position in Christianity. I think the majority of people would fall under this. But first off, when you read this passage, I want you to see in verse 4 that the author is distinguishing between believers and someone different because it's saying those people, right? In verse 4, it's those that have, have, have experienced this. And when the author is describing this in this passage, what I think he wants to do is to make these individuals look as, as Christian as possible without truly being a follower of Jesus. And so the way that he describes them is they've been enlightened. They, they, they've seen the heavenly gift. They've seen the way the Holy Spirit has worked in the lives of people. They've, they've tasted the, the, the good word of God and the powers of what's to come. They've, they've walked with the early church. They've experienced this, but I don't think they've ever really belonged to Christianity. And the reason I say that is because of what verse 6 says. They've fallen away and it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. And this idea of crucifying is actually in the active tense. Meaning in Christianity, we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus that happened for us a couple thousand years ago. But it was sufficient for my life today because when Jesus died, he died once and for all. In fact, I would tell you, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 and 14 should become your pillar verses in this section of scripture. Because what it says to us is Jesus died once and for all, having perfected us in him. That his sacrifice once and for all was sufficient for you for all time. Right? But what's happening in this passage is these individuals have seen and heard and experienced the sufficiency of Jesus and rather than allow that sacrifice to be sufficient for their lives, they continue to re-crucify Jesus as if he wasn't enough. And so what it's saying in the act of tense, because Jesus is sufficient, sufficient enough for them, they continue to do these works as if to add to the sufficiency of Jesus. And when they do that, they're re-crucifying Christ over and over and over again. And as long as you have that belief that Jesus isn't enough for you, then he's not enough to save you. Because Jesus, when he died for you, said it is paid in full. His sacrifice was sufficient. So what I think it's saying in Hebrews chapter 6 with the individuals that are practicing religious law is they need to come to a place where they see the sufficiency of Jesus. But as long as they don't see Jesus as sufficient, they can never fully turn to him, never fully trust in him, never fully lay down their life to him. And so for us as Christians or as people that are looking at Jesus, the question becomes for us, where is your faith in Christ? And have you trusted in him? And is he sufficient for you? And it's the beauty of what they're saying about Christ in this passage is that in our lives you may not ever feel good enough. But because of what Jesus has done for you, you are. He loves you right where you are. This is, the, this is the place in life where when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, what he's saying to you is, Jesus doesn't want you to pretend to be something different. Jesus wants you to present yourself to him exactly where you are, exactly as you are. And he loves you right in that spot. And when you surrender your life to him in that spot, that's where Jesus begins to do his transformation work in you. But it's not until you lay your life down before him. It's kind of like these individuals in the story are holding on to something as if to say, by, by doing all these extra works, Jesus, I'm gonna give you part of my heart, but that's not how a relationship with Christ works. 
That's not how a healthy marriage works. You got to give it all. Just as Jesus gave his all for you. And so this, this is pointing us to that. And, and then he goes on and just gives an illustration. He wants us to recognize within the Christian community, not everyone that is a part of us belongs to us. There are some people that are just attracted to the church and just examine what's taking place there. And so this is this place to call us. Okay, look, just put, put your trust in Christ. And the illustration goes like this. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So God wants to do a a work in you. Do you allow what God wants to do in you to produce the life of a crop or does it just grow up to thorns? Where your faith is in in Christ, that matters. How you surrender your life to God, it, it, it matters. And so from this point, because Paul's just not, or the author of Hebrews, I should say, is not just fixated on the problem, but he's looking for the individuals that want to walk by faith. He then in verse nine starts calling us into that. And so what he says in verse nine is this, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. This is the beloved, now the body, the people that are loved by Christ, who belong to Jesus. We, we are con- uh, the convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is what he's saying in verse 10. Guys, those that are in faith, sometimes we do things for Jesus in this world and, and it doesn't receive accolades, it doesn't receive praise. And in fact, some people don't even recognize it in life. No one else around you sees it. There are some of you in this room that have paid sacrifices for Christ that you know if you go back in your life, you have felt the pain because of decisions and following Jesus, yet you remain faithful. And sometimes when you get to those points, we, we get in such discouragement, we, we wonder ourselves, what's it all for? Who really cares? Yeah, I, I think for my own family, this happens every time we go back east. We visit my parents, my wife's parents, my, my mom who likes to remind me that I'm keeping her grandbabies away. <laughs> for what? And in verse 10, it gives the answer. For in God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Look, I want you to know this. Some of the sacrifices you have made for Christ in your life, other people, other people may not recognize it. It may have been painful. It may have taken you a while to get over it. But before Christ, it is some of the beautiful, most beautiful praise that you have ever given to God. In your deepest pain in pursuing Jesus, before the eyes of God has been some of the most beautiful sacrifice of praise to him. And so he's saying to us in, this, in verse 10 and on that, guys, God is not ignoring this and God is not absent to what you are doing for him. And so Paul is calling us out in the midst of this story to, to, to keep pushing forward, to keep pursuing him, to keep letting God be the joy and love of your life, to experience that great reward and which is in him. And look, in this first century, no doubt the Jews faced challenges and, and it was religiously 
right? And, and they looked at their community and they, in some cases, their community is just saying to them, look, you can still have your Jesus and, and talk about Jesus, but you need to just embrace this legalistic living that we're telling you brings your righteousness because Jesus is enough. So if you just do a little bit of this, we'll still accept you and you can still have your Jesus half in, half out. But with Jesus all in is where we find joy, right? That's their challenge. And today we can look at this and read about this and look down at them really with our noses and think, how foolish, how foolish in that century to see what Jesus has done for them and then just go back to that. But, but you know, I want us to know rather than just point a finger or say anything negative, maybe we can relate to it. But, but in our case, if we just think about this text, I want us to recognize that the church in every culture, in every time period, needs to discover how to live for God within their context. Because while they faced this in the first century, we, we face similar temptation, but it just looks a little different, has a little different flavor in, in our society today. And when culture rises up contrary to God, the, the temptation for us is to do one of two things, to be a pushover or to be a bulldozer. To be a pushover and just go with the flow and what the culture represents to us, which by the way, when you look just like your culture, you can't make any difference in it. Or to, to be a bulldozer and, and try to railroad people. But rather what the gospel calls us to is to stand firm on truth and to share that truth in love. To stand firm on what we believe and rather than beat up on people, serve them. It's what Jesus did for us. But guys, I, I want us to realize in life when culture pushes against you, we're not, we're not fighting against people. We're not here to beat up people. We're here to reach people. The church is the only organization in, in, in really history, I think, that, it, that exists for a purpose outside of itself. We are called to reach people in this world to stand on truth and to love people where they are just as Christ has done. Everything we do as a human being is driven by a belief, a faith, or a, a theology. Everything you do, whether you recognize that what that belief is or not, everything you do is driven by a belief or a faith. In fact, if I went back to this first century, I would see them stuck in this position between the gospel, which is sufficient only in Christ alone, and, and religious living. And by denying this and moving back to religious leave, living, they're saying something about the gospel, though they may not be saying it directly, and that it's not sufficient. Everything we do as human beings is driven by a belief and a faith. The ideology of our current American culture isn't about trusting in an external religion as much as it's trusting in yourself as your religion. In the context of our culture today, we have moved throughout the decades further and further from the existence of a God claiming really there are no absolutes or, or not even maybe saying there are no absolutes, just not teaching them anymore. educationally, we are not providing any more answers to the ultimate meaning and purpose in life. We're really telling people what to do, but not defining the ultimate reason as to why they are doing it. I, um, I don't want to ride this hobby horse, but I'm going to say it at least. Um, in our culture today, when, 
well, decades ago, hundreds of years ago, there was the, the phrase that was toin, uh, coined separation of church and state around the time of Thomas Jefferson. I can't remember if even Thomas Jefferson might have been the one that phrased it. But when he made that statement, what he wasn't saying is what we've applied it to today. Separation of church and state was never intended to move the church from, from the things of the state, what it was intended to do rather was to keep the state out of the things of the church to continue to let the church place its influence on the lives of people. Because that's, that's where the answer is to the ultimate meaning of life. And yet we follow on this trajectory educationally of, of not defining any of this. And I was listening to a speech by uh, Ravi Zacharias. He was talking and he, he mentioned back in the economic downturn that a reporter came to him and wanted to have a theological perspective on what was taking place in the world and the type of questions people were asking because of the hardships. It's interesting when things are difficult, we ask the theological questions. But when life is fine, we just want to leave God behind, right? But here he is, the reporter coming to ask Ravi Zacharias, and he said, listen, I'll, I'll give you your interview if you let me ask you one question. The reporter was a little bit taken back by it, but he allowed Ravi to ask the question, and he gave this, this comment first. He said, take, for example, a young guy studying business or economics in school, and we teach him there is no morality or ethics in business and economics. Then, then when he's a businessman and acts corrupt, we respond shocked and throw him behind bars for living out the very way we have taught him to act in this world. And then he went on to ask the question, should we throw teachers and lecturers in jail for warping the minds of our young people? But the interesting thing about, I know it's an overstatement that he was getting at, but the interesting thing is that, is that what ultimately should drive us as people, we really aren't defining within the education of, of our young people today. We're leaving them devoid of those ultimate answers. And when they're not living life out in light of a God of which they're accountable to, we're still holding them accountable. How can you claim there is no morality and then live like it? <laughs> when we divorce our society from God, we no longer have an ultimate basis for why we exist and where we're going. What we ultimately do is allow self to become God. And our morality will be defined by what we want since the individual is God. When the ultimate purpose of life is about you and your pleasure, it affects everything around us. Without even defining it, we're living by a belief. If we are the supreme purpose of life and we are God's ourselves, defining our own morality, this defines everything we do, the significance of life and how we take it, pro-choice, pro-life, sexuality, politics. You read in this Hebrews chapter 6, in Judaism they were about religion, in, in America today we debate whether or not there's even a God. And in the end, without God... Might makes right. Not even the majority, but the minority, if they scream loud enough, the might will make right. Can I tell you where else we've seen that in history? Nazi Germany. The silent majority made up 80% of Germany. But yet the strong minority who voiced their statements into this world might made what was right. Now, what they did was not right. But when individuals start dictating by themselves, being the idol of society, what is right, then they determine it. And I'm not telling us that we need to go out and then lambast everyone that disagrees with us. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying, rather, is we need to get to the basics of what drives the significance of who we are as human beings. And when the church is silent over these issues, it affects the generations to come. 
You think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian during the time of Nazi Germany, who was given a pastorate position in America. And rather than stay in America, he chose back to go back to Germany to continue to preach the truth to his people. And he, he, he made this statement that just resonates through history. He says, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. That God has given you a voice. You don't make a difference in your culture when you look just like it. In a Nazi Germany, the silent majority gave way to the loud minority. And Hitler went down in history. Listen, this is what Hitler said about his desire. I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. Can I tell you how to do that? Make yourself God. Make yourself and your desire the center of the universe. Like if someone comes in this morning, we have no basis for truth, no basis for morality, and they come in this morning and they say to me, in five seconds, I'm gonna turn around and kill the person right behind me unless you can convince me otherwise that it's wrong. Apart from a moral lawgiver, what do I have to argue on? He says, it feels right to me, it feels good, it feels like this needs to happen. What am I gonna argue feelings back? Well, I feel like it's wrong. On what basis? Victor Franklin was in a concentration camp during the days of Nazi Germany's reign. He was a brilliant man. He ended up dying in, the, in 1997. But in his assessment of what took place here, listen, this is what he said. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Nazi Germany were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. What gave way to what was produced was the education in the minds of the people. That's where the battle started. For us as believers, it becomes paramount for you. And what you choose to do and the time that you're given in the culture in which you live. Can I tell you, if you find, most specifically, if you find yourself involved in the educational system of our society today, if you're directly on those front lines, I'm, I'm not saying all, all, all this to stand against you. Rather, I would stand behind you and just lift you in prayer. What a beautiful spot to be. What a great place to influence in our society. Because it's not just to elevate that position, but to recognize in all of us, all of us, the voice that God has given, and it happens here where you lay down your life for the sake of Christ. And, and to understand that when we make decisions in Jesus, it could cost you. In fact, the Bible tells us it will cost you. And so to do that, to, to take those steps in Christ, you stand over the precipice, and before you step forward, you just, you need to know, is Jesus sufficient for you? And, and the rest of this chapter reminds us of the sufficiency of Christ, but I want us to know, this entire book is laying this out for us. It's showing us from beginning to end how God just didn't come up with this, this plan last minute in order for the preservation of your soul. This has been dictated to us from the beginning. In fact, he starts verse 13 this way. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, going all the way back, saying, look, it, this is where it begins, where God is laying this out for you. This wasn't something that he just came up with out of the dark. It, this has been known from the beginning of time. And so he goes back for us. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since, since he w- could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I 
will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having uh, patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So he's saying this idea is rooted in the promises of God, how important it is for us to see this picture in, in throughout the book of Hebrews. In verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God wants you to take hold of the hope set before you. And where does he wrap, wrap that hope? In his identity. His nature cannot lie. The promises to you will be delivered. And God can promise by no one greater than himself. He says in the beginning of this verse, look, we promise in one another all the time, and especially in this day, your word is as strong as oak, right? I mean, when you're a kid, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. If you ever said that, you're gross, right? But, but as kids, you try to make promises. I swear on my mama's grave. You know, something like that. Your, your mama's not even dead. What are you talking about? But we say things like that because we want our word to matter. But he's saying in this passage, God's word is pure. If there's something that you can trust in, it is God's word. And, and if you ask the question, how do I know? How do I know? I'm telling you, we're doing this throughout the whole book of Hebrews together. We're looking at the picture that God has orchestrated from the beginning in Jesus to see how God just didn't slap this plan together, but he has been showing these foreshadows of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill. I cannot wait to get to Hebrews chapter seven to chapter nine because that section of scripture for me ties it all together so masterfully. Those are my favorite chapters in this book. So I realize in saying this, like for some of us, we need to see how we can trust Jesus more deeply if if we haven't put that faith in Christ. But for the rest of us who have, it's to understand how significant that position in Jesus really is. To understand that his promises and the truth that he's declared to you, how important it is to stand on that and to recognize you will pay a cost for Jesus somewhere, some way. But can I remind you guys, when you think about the early church and the sacrifice that they've made, and I'm going to tell you some of that here in a minute. Today we see those individuals as heroes. We talk about them like they're heroes. But when they stood for Jesus... At the time in which they stood for Jesus, they were not looked at as heroes. At best, they were looked at as nuisances to society. That's why when I say to you in Christianity, for the first, for, for the first 250 years it existed, 125 of those, the church was persecuted. No one sang their praise. They were looked at as enemies. In many cases, they, they could have died alone. But to God, it was beautiful. And do you know the effects of what they did in their society? It revolutionized the world around them. I mean, if I, if I just told you, you don't even, I don't think we even live in this world today recognizing how Christianity has transformed society around us. I mean, during the days of early Christianity, infanticide was practiced in, in, in the lives of individuals that didn't want to keep their kids. What they would do is if they had a kid that they didn't feel like was going to contribute to the family, it was going to cost them more than, than to be a provider, they would take them out and just lay them in the street and leave them to the elements and let them die. And it was seen as okay to do. And Christians began to gather them because they learned from what God taught them that everyone's created in the image of God, that everyone has inherent worth, value, and meaning, and Jesus died for them. And so the early church started to adopt. Adoption begins in Christianity. That's really where it takes root and catches on fire. 
Uh, in, the, in the early days of Rome, that uh, girl, women especially, they were seen as, as devalued in comparison to men. And, and sometimes they would look at women and realize that they weren't worth having around. And so they, in that culture, would just leave young girls out on the sides of the street. And people would come by and they would pick them up. Not Christians, but other individuals would come by and pick them up. And they would do one of two things with them. They would either turn them into slaves or they would pimp them out. And Christianity sees the worth, value, and meaning of women. I I can promise you, I I, I try to think of instances where this isn't true, but if you go through societies in our world today and you compare where women are valued and women are devalued, and I'm not saying it's perfect for women in this world, but I can promise you, to my knowledge, almost every society where you look at where women are valued, Christianity has already been there. It might be a post-Christian society, But the value of women began to be preached in the realm of Christianity. That's why when you look at the conversions in in early Christianity, you know what it is? It's the poor, it's the slaves, it's women. Because the first time in their lives, they're seeing the value of who they are in light of who God is. You gotta think in this society, if you're a slave in Rome, the majority of people are slaves. Well, not the majority, but a lot of the people, I should say, are slaves. Or you're poor. And in the context of those societies, you know what's taught in that theology? God doesn't love you as much as he loves the wealthy. That's why you are where you are. And now all of a sudden in Christianity, they see this God that that doesn't reject them because they don't have, but rather a God that's been pursuing them. A God that loves them where they are. A God that shows them their worth. When you see this in the early church, it's incredible how these individuals live for the sake of Christ, how it began to change society and and end certain atrocities going on around them. And and even when you you look at the way Christians live their lives, they refused to build anything that was dedicated to false gods, which in their society, there was a plethora of that going on. They refused to go to hospitals for treatment during that time period because when they went there, it was believed if you had some sort of sickness, it was because the gods had some curse against you. And so you went to the hospitals, you didn't really get treatment. What you got was a priest who walked around who gave some chant over you. And the Christians were like, no way, we ain't letting some false god chant over us. We're not going to the hospital. And, and sometimes in those societies, what happened if you had certain sicknesses, they would cast you out in the street and considered you cursed by God. What happened in Christianity? Christianity really developed the hospitals. They started to recognize that people need uh, treated by medicine. God created medication that could treat people. They started bringing these people in that were cursed because they understand that was a curse by false gods that weren't real. They started loving on these people, nurturing one another. And all the while, in that society, when bad things happened, when the Nile River flooded, when there wasn't enough rain, when there was an earthquake where something burnt, the people immediately jumped to the conclusion that the gods must be mad. And when the gods were mad... That meant it was the Christians' fault because the Christians weren't worshiping the false gods. And so they would take the Christians out and they would martyr them. There's, uh, if, you, if you read in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read this free online. This is just a section of the chapter titles. But I've told you, first 250 years of Christianity, 125 of that, it would cost you your life. These are the persecutions that took place under those rulers. There's one by the name of uh, Decius that was the seventh, uh, seventh persecutor or emperor leader that persecuted the church. And the way that he desired or wanted to persecute Christians that he found most effective was he would bring out a Christian family. And then he would take the children away from the parents. And then he would proceed to mutilate the children in front of the parents in order to get them to renounce their faith. These people were considered nuisances. 
But yet what you find is that their faith moves forward. In fact, over and over again, you'll read in history these individuals that persecuted the early church that they gladly give up their life as if they are immortal. It's as if they believe they would live forever and allow themselves to be sacrificed for Christ. We see these people as heroes. But during their time, the people around them saw them as a problem. The encouragement to you guys in all of this is to be faithful. To understand just exactly how God can use you to make an impact in the society around you. And that when you choose not to stand in Jesus, you're still teaching a theology. And it's the insufficiency of Christ. But be faithful. But can I tell you this though? When I tell you to be faithful, I'm not asking you to, or telling you or asking whatever, however you want to phrase this, to have this incredible amount of faith. I think what makes you powerful isn't the size of your faith, but the size of your God in which you express your faith. There are plenty of people in this world that have faith in all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, their faith isn't going to save them because in what they trust in, it's worthless. But when it comes to Jesus, you don't have to have this incredible amount of faith. What you need is just a little bit of faith in this incredible God. It's God who does that work. And here's where it starts. Jesus, as you've given your life for me, so use my life for you. At the end of this book, he starts speaking about the belief that the early church carried the promises of God because of the sufficiency of Jesus. So much so that there is a statement that was birthed out of the early church called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed that most people read today is a little bit more extensive than when it first began. But when the Apostles' Creed was first written, it dates as early as 140 AD. So in the middle of all this persecution, you know what the church did in response? It solidifies its faith in the sufficiency of Jesus. And they created this creed that gave their identity. It says this, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Can I tell you, just that phrase right there in Rome would get your head cut off. In Roman, in Roman times, the people were expected to say, Kaiser Curios, which is Caesar is Lord. Christians refused to bow down to any other God except for Christ. And rather than saying Kaiser Curios, they said Christos Curios. Jesus is Lord. And in doing that, they denied the gods of Rome, they denied Caesar, and they faced persecution. But they allowed this statement to resonate from their faith. And it says this, who was born of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, buried on the third day and rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to Jesus, the quick and the dead. And the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. God is able. And the sacrifices that we make to him is the praise of the glory of who he is. And the challenges we face as followers of Jesus should rest secure in the identity of our God. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.